women are starting businesses at a higher rate than any other demographic. And the data proves that minority founders and female founders or teams that have at least one minority or female founder as a part of the founding team, they outperform their their contemporaries. We are resilient. And when I say we, I mean women. I mean women of color. People that are underestimated will surprise you every time. Hi, this is What's Next podcast with you, Mindy Francis, and I'm your host. Avia Wynn is a venture capitalist and fund manager of True Culture Fund, a subsidiary of Crescent Capital, which is over $40 billion in assets under management. As a pioneer for entrepreneurs of color in venture capital, Avia is spearheading True Culture Fund's growth, the firm's first fund dedicated to investing in Black founders and fund managers. Forbes Media has said that Wynn has taken the investment world by storm, implementing new standards, opportunities, and educating the current culture on diversifying representation. What's next podcast? Please welcome trailblazer Avia Wynn to the show. Hi. If everyone doesn't give me that kind of welcome going forward, I'm not going on stage. (laughs) Well, as I always say, um, you know, that this is the truth. These are the receipts, you know? It's such an honor to sit with you here and have this meaningful conversation at such a pivotal time. Um, and we'll get into that. So, Avia, how are you? I'm fantastic. How's how New you? York treating you? I love New York. I've spent the last 17 years in L.A., two years in New York, kind of going back and forth. And now I'm almost full-time in New York, and I love it. So we have a New Yorker. I'm now a New Yorker. Yes, yes. So I'm excited to have you on the podcast, as I mentioned, but let's jump right in. What inspired you to pursue a career in venture capital? Oh, so I did not pursue a career in venture capital. I, unlike a lot of people, I fell into this industry and I consider myself extremely blessed and lucky to, for that to be my story. Um, It's interesting because at university, one of my favorite classes and the one where I got the highest marks was venture initiation. But what I took out of that class was that I could start a successful company, I could be an entrepreneur, but not that I could be the one writing the checks. Um, So I was working for a small investment banking firm in LA focused on M&A transactions, and I just randomly updated my LinkedIn. Maybe Two months later, I got a message from a gentleman in Australia, and he said, you came up on a short list of candidates. I would love to help you further your career. For lack of better phrasing, I thought he was full of it, and I ignored the message for another two or three weeks. And so I was talking to my dad about it, and I said, got this weird message. Like, how funny is this? And he said, well, before you discount it, why don't you, you know, suss them out, do a little due diligence and see if they're legitimate. Turns out they were. Um, I reached out to the guy, followed up with him. The next day, he immediately he immediately responded and said, I'm on a 48-hour stint in LA. Can you meet for coffee tomorrow? From Australia. Yes. Just. <laughs> yes. So when someone goes from being, you know, I don't know, six, 8,000 miles away to being in your backyard, you take the meeting. I went in thinking I'd hone my interview skills, meet a new person, walked out really wanting to work for his company. And he didn't even have a job description at the time. And so, uh, yeah, the rest is history. And what company was that? This was Trimantium Capital, which 
um, is a multifamily office based in Australia. Okay, wonderful, wonderful. So prior to joining True Culture Fund, you led business development as vice president of Triantium Capital. Tell us about that experience. So you finally met him. You yes. got the job, mm-hmm. obviously. So I go through three a three-month interview process. I get the job. I, well, actually before that, when I sat down with him, he said, I'll send you the job description uh, in the next couple of days. So he sent the job description and I had major imposter syndrome when I got it because the title was vice president. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so not qualified for this. And I was talking to my mom. My parents are amazing. I was talking to my mom and she said, look at the qualifications. You possess all of the qualifications. You're intimidated by the title. And she said that, you know, men apply for jobs based off of their potential. Women apply for jobs based off of their qualifications and credentials. She goes, you have the potential to be great at this and you also possess the qualifications. Go for it. So I did. Went through the three-month interview process, got the job, and I was brought on to be head of U.S. operations, business development, and investor relations. However, I was the only U.S. hire, which I didn't know going into this. So I was also tasked with diligencing and sourcing deals and curating a network of VCs and LPs, which are limited partners. Um, So I was kind of thrown into the deep end of being a VC investor. And it was kind of sink or swim. And I like to say that I became somewhat of an Olympic swimmer because I had to. Right. You Michael Phelps did. (laughs) (laughs) I did. I did. No, that's fantastic. So thinking back to that time at Trimantium, where you were vice president um, leading U.S. operations, like what was a takeaway for you? Something that you're really proud of or, or got you excited? So, again, because I was the one in the U.S. representing the firm, going to all of the dinners, summits, conferences, events. I found myself in rooms with very affluent and influential people. And I started to look around and realize that a lot of capital was being circulated in these rooms, but not a lot of capital was being circulated to people that looked like me. And so I, I've i always been um, really passionate about leveling the playing field. And I started to look into how the racial wealth gap in this country correlates to the funding gap that you find in tech and venture, because you know, people don't like to admit it, but this industry, tech and venture, it's very homogenous. Um, I did research and started understanding that, you know, it's good business to invest in underrepresented founders. Women are starting businesses at a higher rate than any other demographic. And the data proves that minority founders and female founders or teams that have at least one minority or female founder as a part of the founding team, they outperform their their contemporaries. And so I took these findings back to my managing director. I said, hey, you know, I think that there's something here and maybe we should launch an initiative to focus on these underrepresented founders. And he was very much on board with that idea. And so we launched 2065 and it was a fun with the sole goal of democratizing access to capital. That was my thesis. And I just felt like if you gave these underrepresented founders capital resources, 
and access to a, bro- a broader, more high-level network that could help them uh, scale their companies. So that's an that's an exciting experience. So essentially, you while at Trimantium, you launched this fund for female founders, underrepresented founders, underrepresented so, founders. Um, anyone that had a harder time gaining access to capital, women, minorities, members of the LGBTQ community, um, veterans. It was a very broad, underrepresented thesis. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. So now that you're knee-deep in that, what did you learn? What did you take away from that experience? We are resilient. And when I say we, I mean women. I mean women of color. Uh, People that are underestimated will surprise you every time. I love that. I love that. So tell me, how do you move on from that situation and end up at True Capital? So in 2021, I decided I was ready for my next opportunity. I'd been introduced to my now partner, Travis Henry, who's at True Capital. Go, Travis. (laughs) (laughs) I'd been introduced to Travis because I was on the shortlist to run the fund for a pretty big celebrity. And that fund ended up not panning out. But Travis and I stayed in touch and we'd find ourselves on, we'd find ourselves on two, three hour long conversations discussing and ideating on how to invest in black innovation at scale. And so after one of those conversations, he said, instead of me, you know, interviewing you to run someone else's fund, why don't you come and launch this fund with me? And that fund was True Culture Fund. And so True Capital is a wealth management firm that functions as a multifamily office. And we represent about 250 athletes and entertainers. The fund has been around, or the firm, the firm has been around for about 15 years. And since most of our clients are black and brown, there's always been an intentionality around investing in diverse founders and fund managers. And so we launched True Culture Fund and the thesis of True Culture Fund is to invest in black founders and fund managers. Amazing. So the big headline in national media for the last weeks relative to VC firms focused on underrepresented groups has been this lawsuit filed against the Fearless Fund and its entities. Let's just take a moment and talk about that. What do you have to say? What are you thinking? WTF. Um, <laughs> so, well, maybe, when I it, was, maybe it's a great opportunity for you to break it down, what's going on for those who aren't in the loop or quite understand what's going on. Absolutely. So when I was reading over the case, uh, for anyone that's interested in learning more, I think that Forbes and Rolling Stone did a great breakdown of what's going on. Okay. When I was reading over, you know, exactly what's going on with this case, I, my blood pressure was up, Mm. my heart was pounding, I was shaking, and I'm pretty sure I shed a couple of tears. You're getting emotional right now. I know. It's crazy. So apparently this guy, Edward Blum, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, obviously I don't care. (laughs) Um, Edward has made it his sole mission in life to dismantle legislation and legal precedent that has been around for 
decades to protect civil rights and civil liberties for minorities. And so it started with voting rights. Most recently, it was, um, you know, affirmative action and well, striking down affirmative action. And now it is this case with fearless fun. Allegedly, a woman that is not a minority applied to the Fearless Fund nonprofit to receive a grant and realized that she could not be a recipient a recipient of that grant because she's not a black woman. Mm-hmm. And so or I guess women of color. Now I think that they've brought in their mandate, yep, but I have. think originally it was for black women. Right. She thought that that was reverse discrimination, which right. I don't think is a thing. But um, that was her feeling. And she reached out to him and um, asked him to represent her in this case. So now he is claiming that their mandate of supporting women of color is illegal, essentially. And I think that what people are trying to understand right now is, is this a fruitless claim or does this have merit? Yeah. And I've, I've heard from some people, you know, that have a background in, in law that there's a good chance that they'll be victorious in fighting this. The fearless one. The fearless That one. is our hope. That is our hope. That is absolutely yes. our hope. So, you know, what what are your thoughts on the on the lawsuit? I think you kind of said it a little bit, but I also noticed that 70 women or 70 funds wrote <laughs> an open letter or signed a petition in support of the Fearless Fund in in this moment. And the Fearless Fund is a fund very much like you, the fund that you have. Right. With the same the, essentially the same thesis. Yes, and there are the thing is well, I have two points. There are a lot of funds that have a niche thesis. There are funds that focus on different sectors. There are funds that focus on, you know, funding immigrants, funding, you know, the Latinx community, funding African-Americans. There are funds that focus solely on funding women. So, Or categories, tech yes, versus that, consumer versus... Absolutely. FinTech versus health tech. Absolutely. Healthcare. <laughs> Absolutely. And so I I think it's a bit egregious and I, I don't think that it has a fair standing, honestly. Um, how does it affect, you know, my fund going forward? Fortunately for for myself and Travis at uh, at True Culture. And it's interesting because I, I'm still fundraising and I reached out to an investor recently and she had a few questions. And the number one question was, do you plan to change your thesis in response to the lawsuit that was filed against Fearless Fund? And I responded and I said, absolutely not. And I think that we can do that because this is at, at True Capital, this is our 12th fund. Um, we also have a generalist fund that, you know, we invest in black, white, Asian, whatever race, color, sector, it's generalist. We invest in, you know, whomever and whatever we want. As a corporation, you invest. 
Yes. Right. We also have a, a fund that's focused on female founders. We have a fund that's focused on Latinx founders. And we have culture fund that's focused on Black founders. So I think that we just have offerings that allow us to be intentional, but we are not excluding anyone, essentially. So it doesn't really affect us. But I do worry that this will give already skittish investors, you know, an excuse to to pass on a fund that has a diversity lens on their thesis. Well, I'd probably have to agree with you there based upon what you said and, you know, fundraising and someone coming back to you in the last weeks. And and that was the first question that they asked. In this climate, uh, fundraising, it's kind of any excuse you can use, but it it can be a real concern for, for some LPs. So yeah, more on this developing story. And we just really hope for the best um, because at the end of the day, it's about the founders you know, and and helping them have a shot at building wonderful businesses. Absolutely. I will never understand why people believe that being more inclusive means that they're being excluded. I, I, I don't understand that. I think it's a win-win if you are more intentional about being inclusive. Right. Right. Well, listen, I will see. <laughs> how this shakes down. Um, but thank you for making that point. It's, it's, it's so valid. It's so valid. And I, you know, I can only hope that via the, the pump circumstance attention on this issue, it just sheds a light on the glaring statistics that this is an incredibly underserved space for absolutely no reason. You know, and we've already established, you know, in our previous conversations that folks, you know, tend to invest with with folks, people that they're comfortable with. Right. Um, and so that's something that you are working to, um, you know, close that gap. Absolutely. I mean, I think that in 2022, there was 218 or a little over 200 billion invested in venture capital. And 1% of that went to Black and Latinx founders. And less than 1%, like way less than 1%, around 0.1% went to Black female founders. And it's just, mm, I don't have the words. Right. Why? So as you know, we've been under this cloud of a bear market this year. What challenges has that posed for your business? Um. Well, fundraising for starters. Uh, <laughs> huh. It has been... Yes, because even though you have a fund where you deploy money, you're also raising capital for your funds so you can deploy more money. Yes. Fundraising has been a biatch. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. It's been one of the hardest things I've ever done in my career. Um, It has also been very challenging to not internalize the rejection because as a Black woman who is investing in Black people, it's hard to not take that rejection personally, but, you know, onwards. So in addition to fundraising being challenging, I also think that there's a a plus side as an investor for the bear market. Um, I mean, we've been a little bit more conservative in our deployment of capital, but 
for VC funds and investors that have a lot of dry powder, aka cash on hand, and it's very much an investor's market. Um, a lot of the valuations have gone down and a, a sort of course correction of the inflated valuations that we've seen over the last decade. And so um, you're getting a better bang for your buck, essentially. If you're an investor. Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> so all that said, what tactical advice can you share with founders looking to raise capital now in this economic climate? I mean, the first thing that I would say is be realistic. And what do you mean by that? I think that, you know, if you if you have a, a lofty fundraising goal in a seed round of $7 million, maybe dial it back to five. Be realistic. Solid advice. Also, be lean. And maybe don't raise more capital than you need. I know a, a lot of founders tend to want to err on the side of caution and they raise more capital than they need so that they, you know, have a longer runway. But I say raise the capital that you need, be smart and run a lean business. And that gives you, you know, additional runway as well. And yes, in addition to, you know, being smart about the money that you're raising and, you know, running a lean and efficient business, I would say also be very careful about who you take money from. There are so many other sources of funding. Uh, for example, self-funding, crowdfunding, grants, loans um, that you have the opportunity to access before you take on venture capital. Because taking on venture capital, taking on institutional capital is a whole different animal. And once you do that, you are beholden to investors. And so that would be my my biggest piece of advice is right. that explore all of your options before you take on venture. And beholden to investors. That's, I think, anyone would expect. But what's the issue there? Um, the issue is that if you do something that is not um, in line with your investors' expectations, um, it might not work out so well for you. For example, there have been situations that I've been privy to where um, investors have under have sought to undermine founders. Um, they have held board meetings to, you know, take away their leadership positions. So you really have to be cognizant of who you're getting in bed with because what people don't understand going into this is that, you know, it's a 10-year horizon for an exit potentially. And that's longer than most marriages. Right. So you're essentially married to, you know, these people that are on your cap table, especially the ones that have board seats and are writing the bigger checks. You have to make sure that there is a good relationship, that you guys are on the same page because it could go horribly wrong. Right. So what can you tell founders that are seeking investors and capital for their business idea? And, and also, how do they pitch you for investment? What do you look for? So I think, and some people vehemently disagree with me on this, that it's all about the founder. I am very founder forward when it comes to my diligence because I think that 
early stage investing is more of an art than a science. Sure, I want to know if they have part product market fit. I want to know what their financials look like. But a lot of times it's too early on for some of those things to really make a difference in whether or not you invest. So then you look at the founder. Who is this person? Do they have the ability to execute? Do I get along with this person? Um, do I see their, their tenacity, their ability to lead? Um, you know, have they focused and prioritized building an exceptional team and, you know, putting, making culture a priority at the, the outset? So I think that, you know, really leaning in on who you're trusting to be at the helm of this company is really important for me. And that's so important what you just shared because it really speaks to the implicit biases that founders in general consider. If you don't believe inherently that a woman can run a strong business or a person of color that has probably not come from the most um, glamorous background, then you're going to have a problem investing in them early on when they need the money early on. Absolutely. Um I remember just a few years ago, maybe 2018, 2019, when there were 17 black female founders on the cover of Vanity Fair because there had spread. Yes, because there had only been 17 black female founders to raise over a million dollars, which is insane. Um, I remember sitting down and talking to a good number of them, and so many of them had had horrible interactions with their board, their investors, and people questioning whether or not they possessed the characteristics, whether or not they have the capacity to lead their company to a successful exit. And that broke my heart. It's so interesting that you bring that up at this juncture because we met at Black Women Raise. Yes. And that was an event um, that was put together by Dee Poku of the We Suite. Love her. That our, our company's <laughs> under road. And it was inspired because um, the founder of the company, Sweeten, was asked to be in Vanity Fair. And she said, not unless you have all the other Black women that have raised at least a million in venture in the magazine as well. And Vanity Fair was like, that's impossible. We don't have enough room on set. She's like, no, it's 34 of us. And they were shocked. And there you have this iconic photo. And we were there to meet all these women Absolutely. and talk to them. And so You're right, it was 34, not 17. But yeah. Oh, I don't even remember the catch the number that you said, but it's, I mean, tomato, 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 tomato. <laughs> it's still under 50. It's still so much has happened since then. I really think that that moment has shined a, fun, a wonderful light on the problem, um, you know, built community and support around everything. Long way to go, but so many great things have happened. Yeah. There have been so um, many more funds that have been founded since then and it's growing. So that was a good moment. Power of media you know, shining a light on stories, but that was, that was a phenomenal um, turning point. Absolutely. And I love that she said that and took that stance because, you know, I, I think that sometimes the people in our community can also 
be the ones that hold us back um, in terms of minorities, in terms of groups of women. It, it, sometimes it can be more competitive than collaborative. And my philosophy on that is if you think that there's not enough seats at the table, sit on someone's lap, pull yeah, up a bench, that's a good sit one. on the table, sit under the table. Like there's so many ways around there not being another seat at the table. So kudos to her for doing that. So what are some key things that a founder entrepreneur should have in place before reaching out to investors? And before you answer that question, I think what would be really helpful for folks to understand who there's a lot of successful business people who have built companies and, you know, brilliant people. But there is a science to the fundraising thing. So walk me through like the earliest stage and, you know, from early stage to like series A, B. Just break that down. Sure. So usually the first capital that a company will raise is friends and family, and that could count as their pre-seed. Um, and that's also, you know, another reason why there are funds that focus on underrepresented founders, especially minority founders, because there is that racial wealth gap. And a lot of minority founders, they don't have friends and family to go to to raise, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars because their families don't possess that wealth. So let's just make that point from the outset. Um, but the first round of capital is usually friends and family. And it could be anywhere from 250 to $500,000. Sometimes some people will raise a million right out the door just to get their company up and running. Up to that. Because there are folks who raise 50000 and put something out yes, into the universe. That is true. Right. Absolutely. Right. Not discounting people that are raising smaller amounts of capital at all. Um, so, yes, let's say you're raising anywhere from 50000 to a million dollars to start your company. And that gives you the ability to hire a few people. That gives you the ability to, you know, build out your platform. That gives you the ability to invest in marketing and market testing and really focus on, you know, what is the best way to launch this product? Do we have product market fit? And also, it gives you the ability to leave your job and focus on this full time. Right. Because a lot of people think that founders with companies that they're getting off the ground should work for free. I don't. I think that you should be able to pay yourself and pay your bills and live. Right. So in addition to um, you know, friends and family investing, you also might have angel investors participate in that first round of capital. And an angel investor is a high net worth individual that wants to invest in, in venture, wants to, you know, has a risk tolerance for early stage investing in startups. And so they might put money in as well. Okay, great. And a good resource for folks to find angel investors can be angel syndicates. Yes. And there are many out there. There are. So just want to share that for those that um, might now be interested in taking that approach. And a few that come to mind are Stanford Angels, Pipeline Angels, Dream Ventures. Annie Evans has a great platform for angel investing for women. She does a great job. 
Okay, thanks so much for that. I know someone's going to be inspired by by hearing that piece of it. So you've already got the first tranche. What's next? What's the next round? So then you raise your seed funding. And once you raise, when you gear up to raise your seed, you have a little traction. You're able to show that you have somewhat of a product market fit. I think in the pre-seed, you might be, you know, pre-product, pre-revenue. It's basically your ideation phase. You're like, I'm onto something. Let's raise some money and see if I can execute on this. And you have product market fit because you've got revenue or sometimes metrics. You have, you have metrics. Sometimes you have revenue going into a seed round. Sometimes you don't. But you do have metrics. Um, and so seed is usually, and angels participate in seed rounds as well. Um, but seed is usually where you'll start to raise, you know, your first bit of institutional capital. And there are funds specifically focused on investing in seed stage companies because they feel that if they get in early, they, you know, are able to maximize in their ownership and um, the potential upside. So, Apia, all that said, what are some key things that a founder or entrepreneur should have in place or consider before reaching out to investors beyond their friends and family or even their friends and family? So answer that how you wish. Okay. You know, I think the thing that founders should be honest with themselves about is whether or not their company has the ability to scale. And when I say scale, I mean, can you get to a 500 million, 700 million, a billion dollar valuation, you know, over the course of the next five years? And there are a lot of people starting incredible businesses. And some of those businesses are small businesses and no one is discounting that. But if you're starting a small business, you don't necessarily need to raise institutional capital. And so I think that that's the first thing to take into consideration. Um, you know, is someone going to acquire this business for hundreds of millions of dollars or am I going to be able to IPO this company on the stock exchange? Another thing to to take into consideration before raising money is, do I have all my ducks in a row? Am I prepared? Do I have materials, marketing materials for fundraising? Do I have a pitch deck? Do I have a one-pager? Do I have an executive summary? Have I done my homework about the investor landscape? Do I know? Because, you know, you don't want to approach a fintech investor with your CPG company. Because they're going to look at you like, you clearly have no idea who I am, what I do. You haven't done your homework. You haven't done the research. Exactly. <laughs> and it 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 uncovers a layer of incompetence right. on your part. So I would just say, do the homework, lay the foundation, and make sure that you're coming to the fundraising process prepared. So what kinds of companies are piquing your interest in the VC landscape right now and why? So, you know, there are a lot of buzzy phrases and buzzwords going on right now in, in venture and everyone's talking about AI. I think that AI is here to stay. I also think that biotech, sustainability, they're all very interesting, climate tech. Um, 
But I also think that you'll see, you know, the trend of people having diversified portfolios in terms of geography. I think you'll see more people investing globally and really focusing on emerging markets such as Africa, Latin America, because there's a lot of interesting tech coming out of those markets. And there's such large populations in those areas that could really benefit from, you know, how the the talent, the tech, and the founders over there are building companies that are disrupting the status quo. Yeah, it's an untapped market. And um, it makes sense that VCs here in the U.S. and in other markets would would want to diversify and uh, increase their potential for a return on their investment by entering untouched markets. Absolutely. So um, with my current por- portfolio, we have 75 investments and 30% of those are in Africa. Interesting. And some of my favorite companies in my portfolio are in those 30%. One of them I was just going to ask you, like, what what kind of companies have you invested in in Africa? Sure. I mean, a lot of them are fintech, but one of my favorite companies is a company called Topship, and it's a shipping and logistics company. It's not sexy, but they are basically, you know, copy-pasting what a company called Flexport out of San Francisco is doing, and they're doing it in Africa. And Flexport is doing extremely well. And they were so compelled by, you know, what Topship is building in that market that they invested in the company as well. Lovely. Yeah. Lovely. That's a great story. That's a great story. So you're a super networker, which is extremely beneficial skill to have when fundraising. Not only do you deploy capital, but you also have to raise capital for your fund, which we already established. What gems can you share about networking and building relationships? So one thing that has enabled me to be successful in networking is the realization that people do business with people that they like and people do business with their friends. And in order to build strong relationships that turn into friendships, you can't have transactional interactions. And sure, a transactional interaction here or there is fine because not everyone is meant to be in your life forever. But people that use people and abuse people and, you know, only want to befriend some someone because of what they can get out of them, that never bodes well in the long term. Right. And so for me, my my best areas for networking have been conferences. They've been intimate dinners, galas, events, summits, um, mm-hmm. places where you're around people that are like-minded. Right. And this is why you'll see Many people in the space traveling constantly to this conference or that side of the earth because you never know who you're going to meet. Absolutely. And you're always looking for new investment opportunities as well as new LPs. Makes sense. So what's an exciting brand or company that you look forward to seeing grow throughout the remainder of 2023 and beyond? I know you just mentioned one. Uh, So there are two companies that I'm pretty excited about. One is a company that a friend of mine just started working for. It's called Function Health. Okay. What they do is they provide a series of lab tests that test for about 100 biomarkers. Okay. And it enables you to have early detection for thousands of diseases. 
And so I think that what they're doing is really interesting. I believe that normally those tests would cost around $15,000, but they provide the package for $4.99 a year, which is pretty incredible. And then they also do a panel of um, early detection cancer screenings. And so um, I'm really excited about what they're doing because I think it can save a lot of lives. And the second, I, I have to shout out to my girls at Parfait. I just, I Parfait. love them. I love them. I think that um, it's always so inspiring and encouraging to see a team of brilliant, highly educated Black female founders and, you know, what they're doing by disrupting the 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 hair and beauty industry with AI and robotics, it's powerful. If you could send a message to your younger self, Avia, what would that be? You know, I think the first thing that I would say to my younger self is, it's okay to be selfish. I think that you have to be a little selfish to, in order to be selfless. I think a lot of people, you know, they don't set boundaries. They, um, you know, sacrifice their needs for others and it hinders their progress. And so I, I think it's a little, it's okay to be a little selfish and to take care of yourself before you take care of everyone else. I would also say that, you know, perfection is the hindrance of progress. Um, you know, I, I grew up as a classically trained ballerina and you're, you're taught that being perfect is everything. Um, and so I've had to have many come to Jesus moments with myself and be like, Hey, it's not perfect, but at least we have something and that's better than nothing. Uh, there, there are two more, um, One is you are your own worst critic. And I've I've had to sit with that many times in order to get out of my own way because no one else sees your faults like you do. And then the last one would be, you know, when I was 15, I was paralyzed from the waist down. And at 15, going through that, if you told me that I'd be sitting here with you and I would have such an incredible platform, I wouldn't have believed you. And so anything is possible. Avia, thank you so much for sharing that. You're going to make me cry. Really inspiring. <laughs> we're, we're emotional over here. So what's next for Avia Wynn? <sighs> what's the saying? We plan and God laughs. <laughs> I have no freaking clue what's next. Um, what I do know is that I have 75 brilliant companies and um, funds in my portfolio that I will continue to support. Um, I have an incredible network of women and mentors and supporters and friends. And um, I'm excited for the next chapter. How do we find you, Avia? I'm on LinkedIn under Avia Nicole Wynn. I'm on Instagram under Avia, Twitter under Avia W. And um, my email address. No. 
Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I feel like you should leave that in there. <laughs> That's amazing. Ladies and gentlemen, Avia Wynn, the trailblazer, the force, the woman. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. 